Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem. This is uh, Jerusalem Studio. And uh, our regular host, uh, Jonathan Hessen, will be back shortly. I'm Amir Oren. All modern military forces face the dilemma of overkill capabilities. Armies, as well as air forces, are equipped to clash with their opposite numbers. Again, armies and air forces, and in great numbers, under conditions which give rise to indiscriminate targeting. Yet in fighting terrorists sheltered among civilians, hitting innocents is almost unavoidable, but still, carries a heavy price morally, professionally, and diplomatically. The latest episode in this series featured recently American criticism of Israeli rules of engagement in the fight against Palestinian terror squads, mostly in the West Bank, and a defiant response from Jerusalem. And to analyze this issue, we have with us three Colonels in reserve from the Israeli Defense Forces, Miri Eisen, Eran Lerman, and next to me, Ruven Ben Shalom. Ruven, let me start with you, even though you are mostly Air Force, but nevertheless, you also had uh, this problem in your branch, and obviously, you took part in other multi branch uh, operations and decision making. How much is that a problem that planners give an account of before the operation? And then when they uh, go into the debrief, into the lessons learned phase, do they go over it? Today uh, in the IDF, I think like any other Western military, it is an inherent part of planning. Uh, There's just no way around it. It's like the backbone, the moral background of what you do. I would even go far as to say, like, it's not even worth doing it if you make serious errors in that field. So just like you deal with logistics and intelligence and uh, issues that have to do with PR, that's an inherent part of planning. You don't move without it. There's no planning team that convenes without dealing with that. All under very strict rules of engagement, sometimes even characteristics in numbers. So if you're attacking a terror stronghold, even if you know that it's an imminent attack, then you will have limits on what you can do. So this is always an inherent part. And today, in this day and age, also certainly looked at in the debriefing process, but also looking to my main profession in the IDF, which is international cooperation, it's a main theme in many of the international forums we deal with. We have multiple partners, allies, friends in and out of Israel doing international conferences, learning together, mutually learning, evolving together. So also this is something that I would never look at even separately in the IDF, even though the IDF is looked at separately when it comes to criticism. But professionally, we don't do anything. If you'd ask Australians, Polish, American professionals today, they know exactly how we work and we know how they work and we are evolving together. Mili Eisen, your own uh, professional background combines intelligence uh, with public information. And these are uh, two sides of the same coin, uh, the coin being information. First, one has to uh, 
locate the target, verify not only that uh, the suspect is there, but uh, there are no innocents around. And if uh, there's a problem uh, with the operation, um, one, uh, sometimes the same one, such as yourself, has to go out and explain um, how uh, this uh, problem arose. How did you do it? One of the things you understand is that the audience that you're talking to is not the same as the people that you work with within the security realm. What Leuven was just describing right now is my professional arena of security where you go, where you target, where you're very careful in what you do. And yet, when you're conveying the, me the message to people who are not within the military realm, you need to remember that. Amir, I used to think about it as being two different languages. There's the security language, which I talk with in my professional world within the military. And there is a humanitarian language that we talk much more when we're on the media, when we're talking to people who are not within that security world. And you need to bridge the two. People who come from within that humanitarian language are not as at ease at that idea that you would in any case perhaps attack a place where you would know that there are innocents, even though we will always always try to avoid so. It is a very big, distinct, different framing and different terminology, and you actually need to be conversant in both to be able to bridge the two different arenas. Iran, there are two asymmetries here which make it um, very unfair to um, a nation such as Israel. One asymmetry is that uh, the terrorists are attacking from within their own population and are acting within the Israeli population, and they don't have any... Both, uh, both, are, both are crimes under the Geneva, uh, the Rome Institute. Yes, but there's no one uh, to uh, charge with such crimes because they are not um, a nation uh, state, uh, they are not uh, members of any international organizations, and nevertheless, uh, they portray themselves as the Davids against the Goliaths. So this is one form of asymmetry. They act at will while the uh, military, such as the Israeli Defense Forces, must obey certain rules. The other one is that uh, the United States, uh, and uh, we have uh, quoted or paraphrased the State Department uh, spokesperson who, um, gently enough, by the way, not the way it was portrayed in Israel, suggested that Israel reviews its uh, practices and doctrines. Um, they did not try to dictate any, any real uh, change, but this is how it was perceived in Israel. When they um, are acting against their own targets, many more innocent people are being hurt, but they do not come under such foreign criticism, at least. Their own press, uh, their own Congress, um, may be critical, but uh, they uh, apparently can afford to do it while they don't allow Israel uh, to emulate them. Well, if I was given to conspiracy theories, I would have suggested that Joe, the President Biden or the administration decided uh, to, on one hand, uh, uh, let's say, satisfy the anger seething in the progressive left wing, uh, the squad of the Democratic Party, and at the same time give Prime Minister uh, Yair Lapid an opportunity 
during an election cycle to portray himself as a defender of the IDF and of Israeli conduct in a very robust manner by uh, swatting down this American suggestion, uh, and so and which is a much needed uh, boost to his uh, image because, uh, of course, he's up against uh, uh, an opponent that portrays himself as Mr. Security. Um, you can de debate the merits of, uh, of both claims, but uh, certainly it gave Lapid an opportunity to basically uh, remind everyone that uh, the IDF is very, as, as you've heard already, uh, for, uh, very meticulous in its uh, um, effort to avoid harm coming to the uninvolved. Um, it's not entirely possible when fighting in densely uh, populated urban areas, which for an obvious reason are the obvious for, uh, uh, the preferred fighting grounds and launching pads uh, for Palestinian attacks. Uh, but uh, the, the methods, the, the sophistication, even the technology involved are all uh, part of an effort to avoid harm to the uninvolved and therefore to Israelis who, who know the score, the accusation that the, the IDF deliberately, knowingly killed the journalist was almost too absurd to even worth being uh, answered. Uh, it was a very sad case of the wrong bullet in the wrong place. Um, it is also a story about uh, the difficulty of making a serious and, and responsible investigation, which takes weeks and months, in the face of allegations and accusations, which take three seconds to make. But um, this is who we are, and we will not. We cannot change. Miri, you wanted to uh, respond? Yes, I did. I think that of all of the cases, the case of Shirin Abu Akleh and her being a Palestinian-American and that impacting United States in a different, slightly way, the change of government inside the United States, as Iran said, assessing the progressives that very much are looking to those voices. Iran, I do want to add an additional aspect, which I'm sure we probably agree upon, I always want the IDF not only to be purer than pure and more moral than moral, but I am actually in a very odd way very proud of us this time. We never said we didn't do it. We said we're going to check. We said the fact that we're saying we didn't do it, we're not saying that the other side did it. For one time, we actually took this event and said, let's go check. And at the end, as a mature, responsible country, we said what we feel is the full truth, that we did it. And we feel that it was within that arena of battle, which is a very difficult one. But I'm very proud of the fact that at the end, we did do that long-term checkup. And we did say that it's us. And we also understand that there is an arena within the military where you're fighting in that term that we call the fog of war. That when that soldier who fought and did that, did so, he did not think that he in any way was targeting a civilian. Ruven, um, you're both um, a former professional airman. Uh, the Americans wouldn't like it to be called soldier. Soldier is on the army. Marines have Marines rather than soldiers, and the Air Force uh, have airmen. But you're also master of the English language, especially the uh, professional uh, lingo. 
spoken uh, by by uh, officers, and it seems as if the uh, IDF spokesman, when uh, he announced, uh, and he is also an Air Force Brigadier General, he announced the results of this investigation, um, somewhat clumsily phrased the gist of uh, the conclusions. What he said was that there is a higher probability that the Israelis rather than the Palestinians did it. But it was shortened to a high probability that Israel did it. A slight difference between the absolute and the relative. Now, um, Ran Lerman mentioned uh, Prime Minister Lapid. Lapid is not the Minister of Defense, but apparently he is the Minister of Defiance in uh, this particular case. But when we speak about rules of engagement and uh, the words uh, roll down our tongues as if we are speaking about terms of endearment. These ROEs, aren't they taken originally from law enforcement, from what a police officer should do when he encounters a suspect? He first uh, calls halt, then if the suspect uh, tries to uh, avoid capture, he should uh, uh, fire only at his feet and only if it is uh, absolutely necessary, fire at him, aim to kill. Isn't that the origin of these ROEs? I don't think so. And with all due respect, my dear friend Oren, I think uh, in Israel in general, there's a misunderstanding of this issue of ROEs. Every time something happens, even in Israeli public, there's this outcry in both ways, by the way. Change the ROEs. Sometimes many Israelis feel that our soldiers are held back, that they're not given the tools even to defend themselves. Open it up. Let them defend ourselves. And it goes also the other way, like you see from the State Department here, questioning our ROEs as if they are too lenient and they enable such, uh, such things to happen. In general, it doesn't work that way. Okay? Again, militaries all over the world have rules of engagement. It's a profession. Inside this profession, there are things you do and how you do it. And I would say, no, our rules of engagement for operational soldiers, for warriors on the battlefield, have nothing to do with law enforcement. Sometimes there is confusion. And we have to admit, we also have IDF soldiers, as we speak, in Judea and Samaria, or what you may call the West Bank, that uh, deal with civilian population. And there are aspects that seem similar to law enforcement. Yet when a terrorist runs towards you with a knife, immediately you can shoot him. Why? Because he follows all the criteria of having a weapon, an intention to kill you, even if he's yelling Allah Wakbar, and it's obvious, and you shoot him. You don't say, halt, raise your hands, I warn you, I'm going to shoot at your feet. You know, that doesn't happen. So also I would argue to the Israelis that are worried that our soldiers have the tools to, to protect themselves and defend themselves. Once in a while, when have, we have an extreme case, we can't learn from that. I just want to want one comment about the State Department. We have a serious problem here, and again, a misunderstanding. I think in your open comments you said, the Americans said. I would claim the Americans didn't say that. The State Department said that. When you talk about this profession of warfare, I would ask the military. I would ask the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And when the State Department says something about the rules of engagement, my answer to them would should be, ask your professionals Ask your chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, by the way, when was the last time he was in Israel? Oh, last, last week. His good friend, Aviv Kohavi. they talk about this. They work about this with, in workshops, in teams all the time. Whatever he says, I'll buy. Okay, whatever he says about me, I'll sign on it. 
So, Miri, the popular myth about um, shoot first and ask questions later taken from uh, the Wild West, this doesn't hold true when a professional military with a chain of command, and not only that, but uh, with uh, judge advocate generals, officers, uh, sitting in on operational planning uh, meeting and telling the commanders what they can and what they cannot do. I don't like when we say that the JAG commanders can say what they can or can't do. I, I disagree with that. When we're talking about JAG, they're part of the operational decision making. They're not opposing anything else. Military officers are not gung-ho trying to go forward and the attorney generals trying to stop them from going behind. It is a joint mission and all of us want to be sure that when we protect, we are protecting against terrorism in a full and complete way. We also want to be sure that we don't kill innocent and not just because it is against the law, but because it is the right thing to do. And in this case, it is that professional aspect that Ruven was talking about before, that difference between the security and humanitarian type of dialogue. When you're talking in different terminologies, in different framings, most of the framing of war today, when you're talking about it within the diplomatic arena, when you're talking about it within the civilian arena, is looked at through the eye of the victim. A victim is a victim. When you're talking about the rules of engagement, when you're talking about that idea of something being legal, you're looking through security eyes on the way that you want to achieve a mission and you want to achieve a moral mission. And that goes hand in hand together. Iran, you have um, a lot of uh, experience and deep knowledge uh, in both uh, intelligence and strategy. Um, should uh, a country such as Israel involved in um, day-to-day and night-to-night operations publicize its rules of engagement so that the world will see that we have nothing uh, to hide, but then the enemy would know how uh, to behave, how to bypass the um, uh, moral um, blocks um, that Israel puts uh, ahead of its soldiers? Well, um, I don't think this is uh, the, the actual rules of engagement for a specific operation uh, are exactly the same as another. Uh, and therefore, this entire discussion of detailed uh, exposure is irrelevant. The enemy, uh, that's to say Palestinian and other terrorist organizations such as Hezbollah, are already paying us this immense compliment by putting their weapons in civilian areas, knowing that they, we, unlike them, uh, would be hampered uh, by this reality. It's a compliment that they pay us, in a sense. Um, and, uh, and this is uh, part of their strategy. And, the re- and this is because in the equation of deterrence, which is a very complicated and dynamic one, um, the element of legitimacy, and I've heard this, this is uh, something that the high command of the IDF understands very well. I, I remember having conversations with uh, chiefs of staff of the IDF on this question. Legitimacy is part of the legitimacy of our actions in the eyes of the world uh, that matters to us is part of the equation of deterrence. And therefore, we need to uh, use our technology and specifically our capability of gathering very detailed and specific intelligence in order to fight in a way which is both effective and legitimate. 
Now, there is no zero uh, option here. There is no way you can fight in a place like Gaza or in the streets of Janin, or when the day comes, uh, God forbid, but it may come uh, uh, when we have to strike at Hezbollah headquarters in Lebanon. There is no way this can be done without any harm coming to the uninvolved. But there is a whole range of procedures. Some of them we've made very public, like uh, knock on the roof procedures for the Air Force, a warning civilians in targeted uh, uh, structures, buildings, to evacuate uh, before they are being could, attacked. Could you? Could uh, you? Uh, no other army that I'm, no other military that I'm aware. Iran, could you uh, go a bit? Could you go a bit uh, deeper or broader into that? You mean, first of all, a phone call telling um, with, inhabitants um, of the uh, building and then and then a small then charge? A, a small charge, then the uh, striking force, whether it's a drone or an aircraft, uh, would drop a small charge, noisy but harmless, basically, to indicate what's coming and then give enough time for the, the people in the building to clear out. It doesn't always work. I've seen cases, uh, in, uh, certainly in uh, um, Protective Edge in 2014, which Hamas forcibly prevented civilians from leaving so but, that but the casualties would, uh, would serve their uh, strategic uh, or, or, or uh, political purposes. But it's, it's but, a spoiler or even a trailer before the uh, main event. Yes, and it does result in uh, lost opportunities to actually hit terrorists because they're also forewarned. But overall, uh, as I said, since legitimacy is part of the deterrent equation, our technological and intelligence capabilities in this respect are part of the overall equation as it is now. Buven, um, I have a two-part question for you, uh, which actually only uh, needs for you to nod in agreement and uh, turn my question mark into an exclamation mark. Isn't it true that um, the reason the Israeli Defense Forces teaches its warriors not to be trigger happy, but rather to hesitate and deliberate, stems from two considerations. First and foremost, you don't want to hit your body force on force incidents. And if you um, are uh, too hasty, you may kill another Israeli soldier. So you don't uh, uh, just uh, shoot uh, um, with abundance. And the other reason was uh, already framed by an American general, David Petraeus, when he warned his soldiers in Afghanistan and in Iraq not to create 10 terrorists when they are trying to kill one and hit his family and uh, neighbors. It's all true. But uh, another simple mistake that people make is that friendly fire is something that you want to avoid. Friendly fire, preventing friendly fire, is not a goal even inside the IDF. The goal is combat effectiveness in order to fulfill the mission. All the aspects that have to do with non-combatants has to do with your morals. And certainly, absolutely, when you deal with what the Americans call counterinsurgency. You're working within a population. The population is not your enemy. The people of Gaza are not my enemies, they're my neighbors, hopefully someday good neighbors. 
So, of course, that's a major co consideration from my basic morals to my strategic calculations and looking at the future on the ground. All the aspects will lead to the same thing. You want to do good. You want to do right. You want to be effective. You want to fulfill the mission. Okay, and so there's no question about that. I see that Miri wanted to comment. Yes, and Miri, uh, in addition to your comment, uh, please tell us whether you think it's fair, not that one is looking uh, for fairness in international uh, politics, that uh, almost no one is raising, because of despair, of course, the question of rules of engagement for the Russian military in the Ukraine. <laughs> Uh, thank God we're not being compared to the Russians. And Amir, let's not suggest that. The Russians in the Ukraine, as they have done that, that's a different, horrific moral plane. I'd like to add in, because I'm not nodding with what you said about both the friendly fire or about that. I am, I am agreeing in that sense with Reuven about combated effectiveness. But for a moment, I want us all to breathe in deep. You do not want a soldier to accidentally, because it would never be on purpose, kill an innocent combat, an innocent civilian, because that soldier has to live with that for life. And when you're looking at that, any soldier who has ever killed a terrorist lives with that for life. Any soldier who has killed an innocent person, that is a heavy burden you do not want to do to anybody. So you're avoid you can call that combat effectiveness. It's also about avoiding both post-trauma and making sure that people understand and feel it is never easy to fire at people, even when they're terrorists. Iran, if, uh, can you emphasize? from an intelligence angle, um, actually, from a, purely from the intelligence angle, a, uh, a live terrorist, a captured terrorist, uh, is a much better asset than a body. Uh, if you drive yourself into this tragic uh, mistake that, uh, without you know, assigning specifics uh, of of count of counting bodies, uh, you you actually you're not looking at the real effects. Um, holding terrorists um, and and uh, asking them questions and uh, then uh, perhaps if necessary using them to trade. Uh, against uh, what may one at one point arise as a need for us uh, is a much better proposition than, than gathering their bodies. So even that is part of the strategic equation as well as the moral and uh, at the end of the day also the diplomatic uh, elements of the situation. Summing up, Reuven Ben Shalom. I think this has to be said in Israel as Israelis. We are not perfect. We make mistakes. We have to continue to learn. That, that's why I urge the IDF to continue to be transparent with our friends and colleagues, learn together, evolve together. That's a very critical thing. And even sometimes answer criticism like from the State Department. We are not perfect, present company excluded, of course. But um, until next time, thank you all three reserve colonels, Eran Lerman, Miri Eisen, and Ruven Ben Shalom. And we will be back with another edition of Jerusalem Studio. Shalom, and we will see you later. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.